Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, is your old pal Ocho. Hello. Now, what's been occurring then? What's happening? What's the chat? What's the story behind the story? Well, I'm so glad that last week we had a bit of a discussion about whether we were going to edit out our chat about Dad's Army, because these podcasts are edited. And in fact, stuff that did go missing last week were references to J.D. Salinger presenting Chegger's Place Pop, making a movie of Jack Kirby's New Gods using only actors who have been in sitcoms for Yorkshire Television. And one thing that nearly got the chop was a discussion about Dad's Army. Shall we, shall we? It's a bit of a tangent, but well, no, it's news. Hadn't realised things were so advanced, damn things already started shooting. Indeed, we just saw a production still the earlier one today, and... To be fair, I mean, it looks the part, it looks pretty good. I'm still not really convinced that this is going to be anything other than uh, sort of a brief success at the cinema. I don't think that it's suddenly going to become like a huge draw and sell out DVDs and then spawn a whole succession of sequels or anything like that. But from the bits and pieces that we've seen of it so far, it looks pretty nice. Anyway, I would just like to express on the record my delight at the news that Peep Show is indeed returning for one final series. It's going to be made next year. It's going to be on probably the autumn of 2015. As we understand, this will be the last series. Although I believe they have already sort of confirmed that nothing terrible is going to happen. There's not going to be any Younger One-style endings, so they can bring them back at some point in the future, should they wish to. And we already had, in The Old Guys, with Roger Lloyd-Pack and Clive Swift, we had a sort of prototype peep show plus 30. I guess. So, who knows? We'll see what happens in the future. Well, I would like to express my sorrow that I'm beginning to run out of episodes of That's My Boy with Jimmy Clitheroe to watch. And it's very important that you make that distinction there, because, of course, we have previously reviewed That's My Boy with Molly Sugden on the show, but not with Jimmy Clitheroe. I don't know if you can review it. I don't know if it's going to be very easy to talk about because it's not one of those where there's a particularly complex mechanism to pick apart. Well, I'm not sure about how easy it's going to be to talk about today's show. Well, now, this is the thing. Today's show is, as you'll already seen on the title of the podcast, Citizen Smith, Series 1. And this is just something that occurred to us recently. I think, actually, it really came out of our chat a few weeks ago with John Chalice, and I mentioned to him there that he'd appeared in Citizen Smith as a sort of prototype Boise, and that was where his association with John Sullivan and Ray Butt came in and so on. So that sort of put the idea into our mind that we could uh, talk about the show. And I'd been thinking about it recently because at some point we were looking at a list of British sitcoms that were adapted for American TV, and we were staggered at some of them, nearest and dearest. On the Rocks, I think, had more episodes than Porridge. Unbelievable. I know that doesn't really tell you much because 26 episodes can be a flop in the US. So looking at this list and just being staggered, that seems like everything that reached a certain level of success was tried out in the US. I started thinking there must be something that simply couldn't translate. And I thought Citizen Smith. And I did ask a few Americans. One said, maybe, but it would need a lot of work. Someone else said, well, the idea wouldn't have been that shocking. And there was one person who said, oh, God, no. No way you can sell the idea of a lovable Marxist revolutionary. Well, you're only really talking about, what, sort of 30 years or so after McCarthyism. Yes. So 
It would have been. That's the thing. I mean, the fact that you've got to address that issue, would this be or not be shocking for Star? As you say, it's not supposed to be shocking. And it wasn't shocking in the UK. He's a figure of fun. He's a lighthearted figure. He's a lovable figure. There's not supposed to be any controversy about it. I think it's just with Britain being more left-wing at the time. It's Callaghan's Britain. Wolfie is himself the product of a socialist welfare state. They've grown up in the 50s and 60s. I mean, one of the easy things to talk about will be the politics and the political differences between then and now. And one of the more difficult things is to talk about the jokes. I'm not somebody who believes that there's no point examining a joke. There's often points examining a joke, but not every joke. Sometimes examining a joke doesn't get you anywhere. This is a bit of the problem I had with Man About the House. Citizen Smith is great because it's just very gag heavy. It's full of good meat and potatoes gags. While there are plots and there are jokes that are bound to the format, there are also plenty of jokes that aren't bound to the format. And those are very necessary just to keep the comedy bobbling along. I'd seen it on and off. It popped up on UK Gold, things like that. And I had occasionally seen it. And I do remember on a previous podcast, I did make a mistake when we were talking about recasting and the eventual recasting of Peter Vaughan for Tony Steedman. I was under the impression that that's when Wolfie moved in with Shirley's parents. I'm completely wrong on that. It's established very early on. So I apologise for any previous silly criticism I made on my false memory. Let's not sum up at the end. Let's get this right out at the start. It's a corker, isn't it? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I really, really enjoyed this. And I know that this is not at all fair to the shows in question. And I think, to be honest, it's something that we should probably sort out ourselves. It's probably something that we should rejig. But quite often the way that we watch these shows with a view to recording the podcast is that we binge watch. Because, of course, that's what you do nowadays. You know, Netflix generation and so on. Shows aren't really meant to be seen like that. They're not meant to be consumed in that manner. But in this case, it didn't at all feel in any way like a chore. The fact that I was watching maybe three or four episodes a day, it was really, really enjoyable. And it was nice to actually see, first of all, we'll talk about this in a second, it was nice to see the evolution of the pilot episode into the series, because pilot episode was remade as episode one of the series itself. It's already got a Christmas special at the end of its first series as well. It's a really, really enjoyable... Do we call them spats shows on the podcast? (laughs) Where we just enjoy the situation. And it is. It's a nice situation. You've got the main sitcom locations. You've got the home. You've got the pub and so on. I don't think that there are really any characters who are a particular turn-off for me. I mean, okay, you've got Stephen Grief as the sort of pantomime villain, but he's... He's not a nasty character. I mean, I don't look at him and think that he is somebody who would ever really lose his nut. He never had anybody's legs stitched together. Well, Wolfie can have a joke with Harry Fenning, although there's always an undercurrent, there's always tension in the air. I don't really imagine that Wolfie could have that kind of semi-lighthearted banter with Grouty, for example. (laughs) Well, this really does walk a tightrope. Let's not get back on the recasting kick, because we're a little bit too fond of that. But it would be very easy for this show to fall to bits. Very easy for a significant number of the characters to just become unlikable, and the situation to be sour. And it isn't. Well, for a start, obviously we'll start with Wolfie himself. Wolfie, like some of the characters we've talked about in different shows over the past few weeks and months... He is somebody who 
could fold the wrong side of the audience's sympathies. I mean, how far are we from... I'm going to have to keep deferring to you this time because I think you have a better knowledge of political history than I do. Certainly recent political history. But I mean, how far away are we from Bader Meinhof and things like that? Because he does look like the kind of people who were genuinely terrorising parts of Europe at the time. I mean, his name is a reference to an Irish Republican. There are a couple of little guarded references. The only Provo girl guide troop sailing very close to the wind. It's, as much as we just earlier said, oh, the Americans would never take this, there are a few places where this could have been beyond the pale for the British audience. Yeah, I mean, he does make quick reference to supporting the Basque separatists, for example. But that's, by and large, that's about the only real-life situation that they ever address. They certainly don't start really getting into politics at all, which sounds really weird when you're talking about Wolfie being the central character, and that's what he's all about. But I think that because he's so airy-fairy, and we'll talk later on about one particular episode, one with Donald Churchill at the end of the series, you see how quickly he's willing to sell out his principles. I think that we can safely say that Wolfie is somebody who likes all the appealing aspects. He likes the idea of being seen as a wise old Buddha, and probably would obviously enjoy being at the top of the pile come the glorious day and so on but I don't really get the impression that he's serious about it in as much as you never hear him talk about going on marches you never actually hear him discuss anything political I think he just saw that Che Guevara poster and when he looks good I'll do what he did and we've got to bear in mind of course that it is a situation comedy and he's not going to be talking about anything remotely controversial so I guess in 1977 the principal issue as far as politics outside of Westminster was concerned would be things like for example Irish republicanism. Up until a few years earlier you still had people like Jimmy Reid standing as communist candidates in Westminster elections. He's still relevant. Wolfie is not yet a museum piece, but at the same time, certainly nobody perceives him as any kind of threat. And he's seen by everybody, including, of course, Shirley and Charlie and everyone else, as really just a dreamer, moderate troublemaker, a loafer. But he's not seen as anybody who's remotely dangerous or has connections which are murky. I mean... The episode where they go after the MP, for example, that's about the only time in this series where it actually gets into territory where he's in danger of losing the sympathy of the audience. And even though their activities are done in silhouette, and there is a reason for that, which we'll come back to, it's still, it's right on the cusp, isn't it? It's at the point where you think, yeah, this, if it's not handled carefully, then this could paint him in quite a bad light. It's a great balancing act, the whole show. I watched a couple of episodes with my wife and she said an interesting thing. Okay, she said it in all in the family terms. I'll translate it. But it is almost till death do us part if Mike was the central character and not Alf. There's a certain... Because, I mean, Mike is pretty far left, isn't he? Yes. I find it very hard to envisage a spin-off sitcom with Mike as a central character because I don't really think that he would have the audience's sympathy. And there are times in which... Eunice Stubbs will take him to task for always pontificating and not being able to hold down a job, for example, things like that. I find that much, much more difficult to envisage, to be honest. And I can imagine Mike being the central character in 
something that was more akin to Budgie, for example. Well, again, there's little Budgie flashbacks in this. Wolfie is slightly on the edge of legality. He knows some dodgy people, like Harry, like Speed, and Harry is, in a way, sort of a Charlie Endel-type figure. He's slightly softer than Charlie Endel, but even then, Charlie Endel is made likeable in Budgie. We find out that he has some sort of moral code. I suppose the Till Death Do Us Part and Budgie are things that make this less unlikely than if you take it cold. It's the kind of thing that you could argue if... I, I have no idea how the commissioning process went on, but it is the kind of thing you can then point to in a pitch meeting, saying, well, look, it's only this ingredient and this ingredient, and these are proven things. We know the audience will take this amount of left-wing bliavating and this amount of cockney criminality. Yeah, I mean, at one point, Harry says simply that he's in the protection bracket. And that's a nice sort of blanket term that you can use for your stereotypical hoodlum. It brings to mind, for example, someone like Frankie Barra in Steptoe, for example, who's actually a slightly less lovable character than Harry Fenning. But you wouldn't really ever get anything where Harry mentioned, certainly wouldn't mention anything to do with drugs. He wouldn't really mention anything to do with violence that was carried out. He can imply that he's going to duff up Wolfie. But he wouldn't say something like, you want to see the state of that guy who crossed me just last night and make a specific reference to something that he'd done because that's not going to get laughs. Do you really get gangsters like that on TV anymore? And did they really exist then outside of the craze? I mean, eventually, Monty Python's Doug and Dinsdale Piranha it's going to be semi-meaningless. It's an interesting, I'm really going off on a tangent, but it's interesting how much even me, who really, really studies a lot of old TV, stumbles across things and going, ah, that Monty Python sketch makes that bit more sense now. Actually, the opening title is The Big Breadwinner Hog. If you watch him, it's like, hang on, it's the bishop. And the bishop used a theme tune from a rediffusion show called The Informer. It's all kinds of weird little kinky bits that it's like no these are very specific references this is not just strangeness what i might put through as a possible explanation for it but it's just hypothesizing is that as television journalism becomes more in-depth and starts to look at more topics and becomes i suppose a little bit braver in the 1960s then you'd have television programs talking about people like the craze, for example, whereas they probably wouldn't have been talking about them in, say, the 1950s or 40s or whatever. When you've got like a sketch like that Python sketch, it's obviously supposed to be panorama-type investigation and so on. And so if those kind of programs brought the underworld into people's living rooms, then it allows scriptwriters to then use those kind of characters in programs, whereas previously there might have been the concern that, oh, this is only going to be really understood by perhaps people in a very, very specific area. You know, perhaps like people in the East End of London are going to sort of pick up on who these people are supposed to be, but people up in Shetland, you know, they're not going to have a clue. And through all those type of programmes, board and action and so on, then you've now publicised those people's activities to the point where the whole of the UK has seen them. And so then you can have a character like Frankie Barra, for example, and people understand who that's supposed to be. Bowler, there's another one. Okay, so are we straight away in that case, are we going to upgrade slash downgrade Harry Fenning 
as he's no longer the cuddliest gangster on TV, because I don't think that you would say that Bowler is more of a threat than Harry. Bowler is trying to ascend. He's trying to get out of it. I think Harry's happy where he is. But aren't they always? Don't they always say that? Oh, no, no, you can't hold my past against me. I'm straight now. I'm a businessman. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, but Bowler's trying to be an artist. And that was another line that caused me to guffaw in... Citizen Smith, the very well-timed, was it car horn? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about our supporting cast. So we've talked about Wolfie, we've talked about Harry. First of all, you've got Shirley, Cheryl Hall, who we will see in a few weeks' time because she's going to be on the Lucky Fella DVD with David Jason, and that was just a couple of years before this. But she tolerates Wolfie and... I mean, there was a suggestion that I think they've been together for, what is it, about sort of three years or so by this point? He definitely makes reference that makes it sound like he was there at her 21st birthday. and She's 24 now. So I think that she's got a remarkable amount of patience. If she is hoping that Wolfie is going to suddenly cut his hair and get a nice suit and get a job in a bank, then... Well, we can speculate later on. We can speculate about what we think would actually have happened to Wolfie. But... Certainly on past performance, there's no indication that he's going to change anytime soon. I've got to sort of wonder, why does Shirley tolerate Wolfie to the extent that she does? You've got me there. <laughs> yeah, okay. He's it's, not a bad sort. He's, he not a, he's not a bad sort, but he does yeah, have... Yeah, he's just a bit of a leech. And he takes her a little bit for granted, but he doesn't mistreat her. Does he ever say anything particularly hurtful to her? No, not that I can think of, no. In that episode, for example, where she starts going out with the businessman and so on, it's unspoken, but I think there was a slight hint in the way that he's describing the pub and says he doesn't like it, he thinks it's very common and so on. There's a slight hint that perhaps she feels more at home with Wolfie and perhaps she's got more in common with Wolfie than she'd actually like to admit. I just mentioned the businessman played by Richard Heffer from Enemy at the Door. Ah, if we're going to slip into drama club, then we need to start playing Sweeney Bingo. (laughs) <laughs> because so far, I've got three names who have appeared in Sweeney episodes. Now, we already established John Chalice was in episode of Citizen Smith and also in the same episode of the Sweeney as Peter Vaughn. And yet, Peter Vaughn's replacement from series three of Citizen Smith, Tony Steedman, he was also in an episode of the Sweeney playing alongside Colin Jeevans from Kinfig. And George Sweeney is in two episodes of the Sweeney. But of course, we like to think of him as George pop pirates, Sweeney, with his filthy foul mouth. Oi, wanker. <laughs> yeah, on a Children's Film Foundation film. I know pop pirates were shown on TV in the 80s because I can check it on the BBC genome. I'm betting that line didn't make it through. I'm going to say that it did, and I've got no evidence for that, but I'm going to say that it did purely because it's... Yeah, well, you and Gummidge. Well, no, don't worry about that. I'm going to prove that one day. Wurzel Gummidge, in case you've just joined us, ladies and gentlemen, and haven't been listening to the previous 60-odd episodes in the archive, more on that later on, I am convinced that Wurzel Gummidge at least once said cow shit, and Ocho says that he was saying cow shed, but no, no, he definitely did. I can remember the context and everything. If I'm going to have to watch every bloody episode of Warsaw Gummies just to find this out, and I may even have to watch all the ones in New Zealand afterwards if I haven't found it by that point, then I'm going to do it. I'm really not going to do it at all. But him saying Wanker and Pop Pirates got through on a children's BBC screening because he's the villain. 
he's not even the villain as in oh big bad character stay away from him but he is the insidious little villain who's got the ear of one of our protagonists so i think that that's deliberately there to establish he's a wrong one it would be like if he had a cigarette in his hand it's just a nice little sort of clue so i think i think it would be allowed i think it would be okay I mean, maybe Tommy You'd Boyd would be... You have forgotten what the 1980s were like. I mean, maybe Tommy Boyd so. would be ashen-faced afterwards and, and apologise and say, oh, you really shouldn't say that word. Okay, so any other instances of Sweeney Bingo as and when they come up? Was Artro Morris ever in the Sweeney? Tell us, whilst I'm checking Artro Morris's CV, tell us a little bit about Wolfie's gang. Tell us a little bit about Ken and Speed and so on. Ken, played by Mike Grady, is involved in religion different religion every week generally they seem to be faintly eastern quasi buddhist probably involving meditation or at least drawing very ornate pictures of some deity that is the focus uh one week he can only eat chicken which results in a colonel sanders joke in the pilot that gets the most enormous laugh kfc must have been very very new in britain in 1977 for it to get that kind of reaction. It's the biggest laugh in the show. I'm not entirely sure why Ken goes along with Wolfie on his med schemes, because Wolfie's all about violent uprising and Ken is definitely a peace-loving guy. There is Tucker, played by Tony Millen. Is it, is it Tony Millen or Tony Milan? I'd say Millen because it's two L's. I would have said so, yes. Okay, fine. And Tucker got married when he was 17, he is 29, and he has about eight or nine children. A few times it's stated as eight, but in the earlier episodes, they like to keep it vague, I guess, for the plausibility of the joke. Give him too many, it makes you start feeling a little bit too sorry for him. Give him too few and the surrounded by kids gags don't work. So I like to think that really we never actually know the correct number. The only thing we can be sure of is that there's always another one in the way. Yeah, he's a sad character. His Zapata moustache doesn't help. I don't know if that's something he's always had or if he grew it for working at Texas Sam's Steakhouse, where he's supposed to be dressed as Jesse James. It's a very striking image, him in this black cowboy outfit with his face looking all drawn and wan. And the only other time we see a definite identifiable member of the Tooting Popular Front in this series is when the aforementioned George Sweeney turns up as Speed, and he is a dodgy character. We only see him because he's got a little bit of time out of prison He's in an open prison, but there's definitely a sense that he's just in it for the rough stuff. I'm not sure why Why is Tucker in the tooting popular front. I suppose maybe a revolution would benefit him. He's got a two-bedroom flat above a chippy. And yes, I don't think that he particularly enjoys his occupation. I don't think that it really stimulates him. So perhaps he's got an idea that he may have a bigger role to play in the, the new world order post-revolution. But he doesn't even seem that enthusiastic when they go on on a mission. He's Eeyore, in a way. <laughs> yes. Now, I've just checked, actually, Arturo Morris was not, as I understand it, ever in an episode of The Sweeney. So it could be that The Sweeney Bingo has hit the buffers. But we're going to well, keep I on I mainly looking. know Arturo Morris from London Weekend Television's The Gold Robbers. What is this? What is this? It was a 13-part drama, 1969. He was a detective sergeant and his superior, his inspector, was played by Peter Vaughan. I just want to throw in something there about Mike Grady as well because I suppose most people will now recognise him from 
Last of the Summer Wine. Oh! Hey, what? I hadn't made the connection. I'm just looking at him thinking, I'll get around to looking at his IMDb entry because I know he was in something. <laughs> I know it's fairly familiar, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just put it off to another day. I'll get around to it. And uh, and it's just hit, yeah, just hit me like a bolt from the blue. I mean, Lon Chaney's got nothing on this guy. Completely failed to recognise him. Okay, now here's the thing, because you and I have now got a task in hand. Because I was just looking up Mike Grady on IMDb to see what he was up to these days. I was reminded also he was in one of my favourite sitcoms, which we'll definitely talk about at some point in the future, Up the Garden Path, alongside Melda Staunton. Recently, I became aware that at least two members of the cast of Absolutely are now regular voices in Peppa Pig. Oh, yes. Because I occasionally get exposure to the kids' shows via my nephew. Have you seen the one where Andy Hamilton turns up? No, I, I think you mentioned that one to me. I think yeah. you told me about that. Now, I know you get exposure to the kids' shows occasionally on and the Miss TV. And Miss Flood from May to December is Granny. Oh, okay. And Grandpa right. is Parker from Thunderbirds. I didn't even have to look that up. I was watching Peppa Pig yesterday for proper reasons. I wasn't kind of like sat down by myself tuning him to Peppa Pig. No, one of my nieces wanted to watch Peppa Pig. I immediately knew that that was David Graham's voice. I know that my oldest nephew is really enjoying Thomas the Tank Engine these days, or as it's now called, Thomas and Friends. And I've just looked up on IMDb, Mike Grady is the voice of Sir Robert Norumby on Thomas and Friends. And it does state here on IMDb that that's both for the UK and the US versions. So, Ocho, you've got to keep a listen out now. I don't know if you get regular exposures to Thomas and Friends, but you've got to listen out now for Mike Grady. And I'll do the same. And I don't know if there are any other well-known names who are the voices in Thomas and Friends, but there might be... Do you know what would be brilliant? It wouldn't be lovely if you had like a well-known sitcom actor in the UK on one of these shows, and then their US equivalent was also a sitcom actor. I mean, wouldn't it have been fabulous if like it was a cartoon somewhere that had Brian Murphy's voice and an American vo- version? It was Norman Fell. <laughs> it's just now. Now this is just established fact. This is just what happens. Of course, John Inman he gets to play himself because you know John Inman was exported to Australia for. Grace Brothers Down Under. So, there we go. Mike Grady is now Sir Robert Norrenby. And I don't recognise that name. So, is he like the modern-day fat controller in Tom's Tangent? Well, no, that's Sir Topham Hatt. So, who's Robert... Sir Robert Norrenby? Who's that, then? Probably a friend of Sir Topham Hatt. Probably his drinking friend. (laughs) (laughs) He probably just turns up at the end of every episode saying, Hey, Topham! When you said he's a drinking friend of his at the club, I'm sort of picturing that club in ever-decreased circles. So I'm thinking, do we have like scenes yeah, set the in there? Is that where they retire to at the end of the day? How can I, this okay. is Citizen Smith. The family unit. We have, as they always just refer to themselves, mother and father. Well, as you said, in the pilot episode, Arthur Morris is the father of the household. And he's then replaced with Peter Vaughn for the first couple of series. And then for the last two series, he's replaced in turn by Tony Steedman. I've seen some of the later episodes, and I like Tony Steedman in a lot of things, but I do prefer Peter Vaughn in that role. I think it loses. Well, a Tony bit Steedman's stuck, isn't he? Because he can't go too far in any direction with the part. I was a little bit annoyed that they didn't give Tony Steedman a piece. We're just supposed to believe that Charlie's just pretty much gone bald in the space of six or seven months or so. Although you could say that was the stress of living with Wolfie. And as Florence, we have sitcom, I suppose you would say sitcom stalwart, Hilda Braid. Oh, he says sitcom stalwart. Uh, when I was looking her up on Wikipedia, they seemed to think that this was her first big role. 
So she's a sitcom stalwart as a result of Citizen Smith. Hmm. Well, I was sort of thinking that she was somebody who you would just see here, there, and everywhere. She's in an episode of In Loving Memory. Well, I'm surprised that that's what you said there, because I was expecting you to say that she's in an episode of Dick Turpin. She's in an episode of The Gold Robbers. Aha. She's also in an episode of Daughter on the Go. More on that later, dear listener. It's actually Wikipedia's talking cods, isn't it? This She's got a plentiful career before. Well, think, and she's also in Man About the House and Miller Makes Five and Spring and Autumn, For Love of Oh, Ada. the organisation. I wish that would come out on DVD. Cat Weasel, said Cars. I mean, she's one of these people... I think she's along the lines of, say, Norman Bird, for example, where you can't necessarily associate her with any one show because she's just been in everything. I would expect that most people, if they saw a picture of Hilda Braid today, would associate her as Nana Moon in EastEnders, because she was there for three years. I do like the chemistry between the two of them in the household, because she always sees the nice side of things, and even when the evidence is staring her in the face, she'll try and think of a polite way of explaining a situation where, of course... Charlie is just, he's always wired, he's always ready to blame everything and anything on that damn Yeti up the stairs. She's a great device for defusing things and keeping things funny, keeping things light. In a situation where, even with a little bit of concession to realism, things should kick off. She is a reason for that, to not kick off and still work as a scene. Everything's just nicely balanced in here. Should we talk about the difference between the pilot and the first episode, that's not a very British thing, is it, for a pilot to get remade? The only other instance I can think of of it happening is Oh Daughter Beaching. And even in that instance, as I understand it, it was only the scenes involving the replacement of Sherry Hewson with Julia Deacon that were actually reshot, and the rest of it was the original programme. Yeah, whereas generally the pilot is either repackaged as episode one, I think happened with Yes Minister, even though now we only get the pilot version on the DVDs, which is just a difference in theme tune. As far as I'm aware, there was a version with the Ronnie Hazelhurst Westminster Chimes theme that was then put out as the first episode. Up until, I think it might actually still happen today, and I don't know why this is the case, but when you see the pilot episode of Open All Hours, Ah, there's another one. The pilot episode of Open All Hours didn't actually become a remade episode of one of Open All Hours, but there were elements of the pilot, of the storyline, which were then reused. And that's more normal. That's more normally what you see. In a case of where you can't just package the pilot as part and parcel, it doesn't matter. They just move on. Even when there's been recastings, episode one seems to take off from where the pilot left off. It's very unusual to have a Citizen Smith case where they completely remount the pilot. I think of it as a much more American thing. What I was going to throw in there about Open All Hours, keep an eye out for the pilot episode of Open All Hours on Gold, because even as recently as a couple of years ago, when they were showing that, it would have the Seven of One little intro ahead of it, because of course that's where it came from. And before that, BBC Two showed a block of pilot episodes in 1996, I think it might have been, that was called Pilot Paradise, went out late on Friday night. And so the UK Gold version has got that preface as well, 
from some unknown little herd of BBC Two repeat run from the mid nineties, which then leads into Seven of One, which leads finally into Open All Hours. Do you think how many prefaces this thing got? It looks like a modern day feature film. Now the odd thing about restaging the pilot is that the audience for the second version actually seems rather flat, whereas the audience for the pilot pilot, as you said about the Colonel Sanders line, for example, I guess a round of applause, the audience is really hyper for that first one. I don't know, is there an element that perhaps a lot of people in that studio audience recording have maybe seen that pilot go out within the past few months, for example? That's a good possibility. But there's just interesting little bits where lines have been filleted out. Is that thing of, oh, you don't want to just live together. What's her name? She moved in with a man. What happened? Well, nothing. Actually, she was quite happy, but it's still not nice. Now, it's, actually, she was quite happy is removed for the episode one version. It's just interesting looking at it and trying to work out what's going through John Sullivan's mind or the producer's mind or the script editor's mind. It's just like just removing one line, just removing a few words here and there for reasons of pacing or whatever. I would like to get your opinion on one line from both the pilot and then episode one. You know when they're in the record shop to make conversation, Wolfie says to Shirley, I came in for a record. And she says, which one? And then he puts on his Eric Markham voice and says, Des O'Connor, live at the Golders Green Crematorium. Now, I was thinking about this afterwards and I was thinking, would Eric Markham actually have said that line? And I eventually came to the conclusion it would have been just a little bit too harsh. He might have said it in the stage show. There is that one 16mm version of their stage show with their blue material. In other words, they occasionally use the word sex. And that's about as blue as it gets. I think they actually use the word sex symbol to describe Ernie. And that's, that's about it. That's, I was going to say... Oh, and he does tell the deck chair joke with the punchline intact. Because he does tell... Is it Parkinson? I think it is, actually. I think it's a Parkinson interview where he does actually tell that joke in full. But even in the annual which I think was 1978, it had the joke written down. But funnily <laughs> enough, the print just faded away just as it came to the punchline. <laughs> but no, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, would he come out with that line? And I was like, no, it's probably going to be a little bit too harsh. I mean, there's a nice bit of fancy footwork, bit of skill of rescuing a gag that can't work because of the recasting, but making sure that it's still present. In the pilot... Wolfie is unwittingly having a drink with Shirley's dad and saying, no, my girl's father, he's Welsh. And Artro Morris says, where from? Says, Wales. Peter Vaughan's character is supposed to be from Batley in Yorkshire. You can't really do he's from Yorkshire, where from, from Yorkshire. That doesn't work. But it's instead of just dropping the gag, it's repurposed. So, my girl's father, he was a soldier. What in? The army. <laughs> There must be some way of taking this pilot and this first episode and showing them to a bunch of would-be comedy writers or maybe just even writers in general and just saying, look at this, look how precisely... It's nice to be saying nice things about John Sullivan because we'd looked at one episode of Just Good Friends and we weren't taken with it, mainly because of Vince and his honey monster antics. <laughs> Um, out of that, we ended up looking at Only Fools and Horses, Royal Flush, which is famous for not really working the way it was meant to. So previous times we've looked at John Sullivan's work, 
we've given him a kicking because of the context. And you just look at this and it's like an antique watch in its mechanisms. It's not a complicated situation particularly to talk about. A lot of generic stuff in there, which is fine. But in terms of placement of gags, it's very, very detailed. Just one last point on the topic of the pilot episode. I did once hear John Sullivan being interviewed about Citizen Smith and how he had introduced himself to Ray Butt at the BBC bar and said to him, my name is John Sullivan, I'm going to be working with you soon. Ray Butt had said, oh, what on? And John Sullivan said, well, I haven't actually written it yet. That was his way of getting a nice introduction to him. Apparently he'd watched the scene shifter at BBC for a long time. One of the projects this, this he... sometimes, as a story, gets put the wrong way around, making it sound like, oh, he was a scene shifter who wrote something on spec. He had the idea he'd been writing, and he decided the best way to get this idea off the ground was to get inside TVC and find out how things were made first, which... As we're saying, we're talking about how detailed this is. So he's looked at it from the bottom up, but he's looked at how it is all done. Simply from the perspective of a scene shifter, but it gets him close to the people he needs to talk to. So it's sometimes told as a slightly different story to the way it is. It's a bit like Ronnie Barker and the Gerald Wiley thing, about the the big revelation of who Gerald Wiley was, and they had that dinner. That's actually done around about the time of Frost on Sunday. By the time the two Ronnies is happening... Everybody really knows who Gerald Wiley is, and in fact, he starts using different pseudonyms. Clarence, his last sitcom, <laughs> BBC, is written by the delightful lad's own Bob Ferris. One of the shows, I believe, that John Sullivan worked on as a scene shifter was actually the Mark and Wise Christmas special of 76, including the Singing in the Rain production. But with regard to the pilot episode of Citizen Smith, he talked about how he'd written Citizen Smith and it had gone into production, and he was then waiting to get payment from the BBC. And so as he's waiting for it, he has to take a job as a window cleaner. And on one occasion, when he's cleaning windows, through the window, the household have the TV on, and there popped up a trailer for Citizen Smith. <laughs> it's a bit like that story about Peter Cook and the New York cabbie. Do you know that? Oh, remind me. I think it's New York. I, another thing I need to apologise. I said in the Comics and Wrestling podcast mm. that... The comic Miss Marvel set in New York. It's set in Jersey City. Well, Peter Cook is in a large city in America, and he's getting a cab somewhere. And they get stuck in a traffic jam. And the cabbie's going, it looks, I don't know, it looks like they're shooting something. I'll, I'll get out and have a look, and I'll come back, and I'll tell you and get an idea of how long it's going to take. He gets out, and he comes back, and he turns to his passenger and says, you won't believe who that is up there. Dudley Moore! <laughs> Do we know how Peter Cook reacted? Anecdotes don't work like that. Uh, last night. They, always, they always cut off at the funniest line. <laughs> Otherwise, nearly every anecdote would be, and the other person harumphed and got a bit embarrassed. The atmosphere went down a bit. Let's go back to another difference between the pilot and the series. Peter Vaughan's a lot angrier than Arturo Morris. It does heighten the tension a bit. The only thing that nudges at the boundaries of credulity is Wolfie living there. By the end of the series, he's still there. 
think he would have thrown him out before then. Well, exactly, because basically Cheryl Hall leaves the series halfway through, so with Shirley not there to argue Wilvie's case, then yeah, it's hard to imagine he would have stayed there. I suspect that Florence would have taken up his case, and also Ken's as well, and said it was company for me and oh, so you, on. Yes, you can hand wave it. It's not impossible. It gets a little weirder after Shirley leaves. Why they're still, but maybe by that point they're used to the money. But or at we're least not they're going used to owning the debt. <laughs> we're not into not going out territory, which you've tried to explain to me previously, and I was getting really confused about the number of twists and turns that that's had over the years. You said the other day, "Why don't we look at something modern?" And I said, "Because I hate, I hate modern British television." And you, you had to Google Graham Coxon, which isn't really modern, is it? It's your generation. It is, and I'd stopped listening to Radio 1. That's, that's, that's exactly the same time where Radio 1 went off I never funny. listened to Radio 1. I think the only times I listened to Radio 1 was when Number One Cup, Cornelius, and Stereolab had peel sessions. And beyond that... <laughs> the only time you listened to Radio 1 was when it was their turn to share VHF. <laughs> You'd have been listening to sing something simple, and then suddenly Bruno Brooks turns up with his sounds, noises at 5 o'clock. But yes, okay, so let's put that to the vote then. Do you want us to talk about not going out as a modern show? So, I mean, when it was only on its second series, a friend of mine, I think maybe after the second series was the first time it was announced that it was cancelled. And a friend of mine said, no, they should keep going. It's the 21st century Only Fools and Horses. It's going to be a, a regular repeated war horse for them if they play it right. And it's still going. Don't know how many episodes it's got under its belt now. But it's so unstable in terms of its cast. Still Lee Mac, that's fine. But on the supporting cast, the spotlight has to keep shifting as different people come in and go out. That I'm not sure if it's ever going to quite carve a niche for itself in the public's consciousness. What do I know? They're still making it. So that's a possibility for something to look at. Do we have to do every single episode of it? No, I think we can look at a selection. I watched the first four series. So keeping up on the latest trends, of course, I know the neat narrative pushed by BBC4 documentaries, doesn't really stand up. But there's something a bit early to mid-70s in parts of Citizen Smith. This is 1977, it's the year of punk, and while, despite what you might get in stupid documentaries, not everybody immediately went punk one minute past midnight, January the 1st. Well, no, we've discussed previously the trend within not just sitcoms exclusively, but also, I suspect, light entertainment. So things like the two Ronnies, for example, that they don't really reflect what's going on as far as cultural zeitgeist is concerned right there and then, because that would be unknown to large parts of the audience. So, for example, Terry and June take up disco dancing in 1980, by which time it's been around for long enough that the general population, even those who have got no interest in listening to disco music still knows that there is such a genre as disco. So you wouldn't really have had, for example, Wolfie making gags about punk music in 77, even though it would have been bang up to date and topical and so on, because nobody's aware of what it is yet. And also we've got the gap between John Sullivan having the idea and actually getting the thing in front of cameras. That being said, it doesn't feel too out of time, does it? But pop cultural references, I think that's one of the things that makes Wolfie likeable. His Eric Morecambe, his Basil Brush impression at one point. 
it keeps him nicely recognisable to the audience. That's like, yes, he is part of your world. I think that's another beautiful little detail that helps us keep close to the character. Now, I did wonder about this, actually, because... Okay, I haven't mentioned this yet in the podcast because I don't want to draw too many parallels with real life because, you know, in a sitcom it's going to be recognisable characters but it's not going to be as dull as real life, let's be honest. But at uni I met quite a few Wolfie Smiths and none of them, for a start, were as engaging or as witty or as likeable as Wolfie. And also I would have said that the majority of them weren't actually as in tune with popular culture as Wolfie is. So I don't know where Wolfie does all his television viewing, but he's pretty up on... It's a device to keep him likeable. He can't be that bad. He's familiar with the work of Eric Morecambe, even if he's a little bit harsher. Well, let's briefly have a look at the episodes in Series 1, because, like I said, I really enjoyed, particularly Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I thought that was a really strong second episode. <laughs> Actually, the Christmas one. I really liked the Christmas one. And the thing that made that was... Uh... I don't want to blow the gag. Is this still being repeated or is this likely to be repeated? It does occasionally get a repeat on gold. I don't want to blow the gag, but actually, now that was a thing that Wikipedia said was that the first Christmas special was never repeated on UK gold, despite every other one being shown. But if it does turn up, Kermit the Frog (laughs) is the big laugh in that show for me. Now, I was busy sending you messages when I was watching the Christmas episode I was saying things like I do like this attention to detail because we've got reference to Christmas Day being on a Sunday which it was in 1977 they have the correct radio times the Christmas radio times is on top of the TV set that's a John Sullivan device because you also see that in the Christmas Only Fools in 1981 as well and yet what channel was showing Batman on Christmas Day 77? <laughs> that wasn't even the proper theme tune it was the kind of Batman theme that you would get in Three Two One when Bernie Bresler comes on with his cape. And his perfectly accurate utility belt. I swear they had Neil Adams as a consultant on that show. Everything else, <laughs> you know, Biggles, a magician, Philip Marlowe, all being superheroes, but they got Philip the Marlo, belt just superhero. right. <laughs> I don't think there were any bad episodes in Series 1 at all. I think that some are better than others, and I think that, for example, the one with Donald Churchill... I think is you know, the plot really sort of reveals itself in the last sort of 10 minutes or so and the rest appear to be more sort of wolfy at home and just seeing how he gets under Charlie's feet and what have you. But the only time I think that it ever slips into an area where you think, yeah, this could lose sympathy with the audience, I think is the hostage. I won't spoil anything about the, the plot of that. but It's like we do have to engage with the central concept occasionally. It's good that it's got generic elements that keep it bobbing along as a sitcom that you want to watch with the family. Well, it'd be interesting to see how much they keep that up, because by 1980, Wolfie's going to be less of a type. The Del Boy type's going to be snapping on his heels. We could make comparisons, some fairly pet comparisons between Wolfie and Del Boy in some of the situations they get in, but I'm a bit leery about taking somebody's most popular work and pretending that it's really the only idea they've ever had and everything prefigures it. Everything's a foreshadowing or an echo. Speaking of foreshadowing, did you notice the... Episode title? No, 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 oh. no. Did you notice in The Hostage, where they go to the Tory club and wait for the MP to come out, 
Now, I don't know if this is something which necessarily would have to be changed on like a DVD release or something like that, but in the episode itself, it's got a picture of Margaret Thatcher outside the Tory club and the music that's playing is I Believe in Miracles <laughs> by Hot Chocolate. Now, I don't know if that was the prevailing view in 1977. I've heard occasionally that sort of suggestion that people thought that she was unelectable and so on. So, yeah, that was a nice little subtle piece of business in there. Well, talking about foreshadowing, you do know what the episode title of Season 3, Episode 3 is, yeah? Mm, Ollie Pulls and Horses. Yeah. I didn't know it was 3.3, but I knew that that had been used as an episode title, yeah. And it's got Wilfred Bramble in it. Ah, yes, now, yes, I have seen that, actually. There's been quite a few people who've turned up in episodes over the course of time. I mean, like we said before, there's quite a bit of recasting that goes on over the course of the four years. But also, there's quite a few famous names. David Kelly pops up in an episode. John D. Collins pops up. John Quayle pops up. Of course, we still haven't done Farrington of the FO, have we? No. No, no, immediate, no immediate plans. Now, you mentioned that you'd seen George Tovey in something. Oh, of course, he's Budgie's dad. Ah, there we go. Again, there we go. Michael Stainson's sergeant. He's always a policeman, except, of course, in Metal Mickey. Corbett Woodall is a newscaster in one episode. Shall we just have a little diversion and talk about Corbett Woodall? There was a certain leeriness at the BBC, not an exclusive lockdown, but there was an element of not quite being comfortable with currently serving BBC newsreaders appearing on things as BBC newsreaders. Now, I know Kenneth Kendall is in a 60s episode of Doctor Who, Richard Baker famously in an episode of Monty Python doing interesting gestures <laughs> and seeing lemon curry. But generally there, there was a feeling that if you could avoid using a newscaster. You should avoid using a real newscaster. Corbett Woodall had been a newsreader, and unfortunately he developed particularly crippling strain of arthritis, which meant that he had to retire from that job, but he was able to do very brief bursts of work. So throughout the 70s, he frequently turns up in comedy shows as a newsreader because he looks and sounds and acts like a newsreader. People would have remembered him as a newsreader, but he didn't have that problem of being a currently serving BBC newsman. There's a great sketch in Q where Spike Milligan is voicing his unspoken thoughts, which is why I always think of him as Butch Corbett Woodall. <laughs> so he's an interesting little bit of television history, Corbett Woodall. There was a period in the 1980s when a number of the long-serving newsreaders were effectively retired. And I think that you did then quite often see, I mean, some of them went off to work in like commercial TV and so on, but you did quite often see those people then turn up in sitcoms. Like, for example, Richard Whitmore delivers the news about the nicked satellite dish in Only Fools. And Peter Woods, for example is the host of the Right to Reply style programme in Eddie Monsoon Alive in the comic strip. And, of course, Reginald Bosenkay in Monty Python. But he was still a serving newscaster at that time. But from yeah, the but other side. the other side, so. Yes. You asked the question there about is Citizen Smith currently being shown, and not that I'm aware. I will just check this as I'm speaking just now, because quite often it is worth a gander. It's not the first place that you'd think to look for sitcoms because the name of the channel is Drama. And yet, they actually have quite a lot of sitcoms on there. So I'm just going to check that to make sure. Okay, at the moment then, Drama appears to be showing the live birds, Bread, and To the Manor Born, and their little 
comedy triple pack in the evenings on weekdays at six o'clock. But that's the kind of place where Citizen Smith is most likely to turn up these days. Or perhaps on gold. But for some reason, it's just been forgotten about. I've noticed this actually with a lot of the John Sullivan sitcoms. That obviously there's no shortage of Only Fools airings. But you don't tend to see Citizen Smith or Just Good Friends or Dear John being repeated very often. They do turn up on gold every now and then, but they're not fixtures as you might think. And you'd think that perhaps more broadcasters would be willing to air those shows if for no other reason that you then preface the description with from the writer of Only Fools and Horses. I mean, straight away that's an in. So if somebody's never heard of the show before, then you'd think that's a nice little instruction for a new viewer. It's a problem when you give the people what they want. Generally, what the people want is more of what they've got, but only cheaper and sweeter and less demanding damn people. You're wrong, Wolfie. Not power to the people. Power to an elite. Me and Mooncats and (laughs) to everybody else. I do have an idea that if I ever come into... I don't want to say win the lottery because that's a hackneyed old sitcom jumping the shark type moment in itself. But if I ever do come into money, then I've got an idea as to exactly what's going to be on my television channel that I'm going to launch. And it's largely going to be material which has either already been wiped or is impossible to clear because all the paperwork has been lost. Basically just going to be the entire TVS archive. Series Did... 4 of Mind Your Language. Oh, yes! Even Francois Pascal doesn't have any copies of that. Oh, can you believe that? Although, actually, I know we did actually, we've seen about three seconds of that, haven't <laughs> yes. we? I think it was a piece of continuity. I think it was, was it Anglia who were showing it about, yeah, they were showing about seven o'clock in the evening. It was like one of the few regions where it got a peak slot. So yes, we've actually seen about three or four seconds of the long since forgotten fourth Mind Your Language series in 1986, which I believe was actually shot in a further education centre rather the studio. Anyway, I digress. Did you say, Ocho, that Citizen Smith is shortly to enjoy a DVD release? Well, that's what Wikipedia says, but can you trust Wikipedia when this thing, Hildebrand's first big role was mom in... Citizen Smith. The rights have changed hands, but the playback version is still currently cheaply to be had at the time I'm telling you this, but you know how things move around. Prices go up as well as down. Yes, it was previously available on the playback label. And so, yes, I I would certainly say it's well worth tracking down. I think that I would give this a very enthusiastic recommendation. Yep, same from me. So next week on the show, we are going to be talking about The Doctor series. Now, specifically, we're going to be talking about the London Weekend television Doctor series. So we're not going to be looking at the films. We're not going to be talking about Doctor Down Under. And we also won't be talking about Doctor at the top. So I did oh, this point, Yocho. My flagging libido. Actually, that was the new Liver Birds, wasn't it? Rather than Doctor <laughs> at the top. But that was, that was we decided what every revival has as a line or an implication. So now we're going to concentrate on the glory days when they were young and free and beautiful and so on. So we're going to look at a little selection of episodes across Doctor on the House, Doctor in Charge, Doctor at Sea, and Doctor on the Go. I'm sort of wishing I hadn't actually excluded Doctor Down Under, which is one of my favourite sitcoms Well, ever. don't. Well, it's not really canon, though, is it? Because there are continuity problems if you then look at Doctor at the top. Do we really worry about those things? Well... I'm more interested in Doctor Down Under being part of the canon than 
the revival. There you go. Slip an episode in then. Oh, wait. I will do. And it's not going to be that one that I saw Dreamed. when I was. No, it wasn't a dream. It was that <laughs> I saw an episode on cable many, many years ago. And because it was going out at midnight, it was quite drowsy. And so I ended up believing that there was an episode which was largely silent with no dialogue whatsoever. I have unfortunately since discovered this was inaccurate. Anyway, if you want to check out any of the previous shows, we've got 60 odd episodes in the archive now. You can find them all at sitcomclub.com. You can find links on there to get them from iTunes or just your preferred podcatcher. Obviously you can get in contact with ourselves. We're at the sitcom club on Twitter and the sitcom club on Facebook. In the meantime, you've been Ocho. I've been Mooncat, and this has been The Sitcom Club.